0: All right, all you good citizens of Crypt Nation, welcome back to the Crypto 101 podcast. Pete's Mind here, joined by Bryce Paul. Bryce, how are you doing today? You know,
1: I'm doing pretty good, Pete, uh, despite some volatility in the markets, which I was actually on the right side of uh, for once. It feels like, uh, you know, the volatility feels like it always chops you up. But uh, I was able to capitalize, had plenty of sideline cash. Uh, You know, we're recording this after a pretty huge rise in volatility in the market. Um, but yeah, it, things have been good. I've, I'm feeling happy, well-positioned going here into the end of the year. And uh, with that being said, Pete, uh, how are you doing after the volatility?
0: Uh, well, I'm not as smart. So uh, I got liquidated <laughs> uh, on my link position on KuCoin. It, it dropped from $28 to about 5 so even though I thought I was well positioned at only two and a half X leverage, I still got pounded into dust. Holy so smokes. Let that be. I, I thought to myself, what is the lesson here? And it's just simply stay away from leverage. When will I ever learn? You've been trying to tell me for over a year now. And what can I say? Sometimes I'm just addicted to gambling and poor choices. <laughs> but We're recording this just after our Thanksgiving break. And despite this being the craziest year and a crazy time in the craziest year, there's still a lot to be thankful for. So I'm glad to have good people and good advice and this amazing podcast to come talk to and learn from people that are crazy smart and hopefully I'll make better choices in the future. Which segues into our guest today, which is Matt Cutler from Block Native, the mad genius over there who's doing things in something called a mempool. And we're gonna learn about what that is today. Matt, welcome to the Crypto 101 podcast. Uh,
2: welcome, thank you, it's great to be here. Happy to be talking with you guys in, in this period just after Thanksgiving and before the end of your holidays. And a lot happening out there and a lot to talk
0: about. So excited to dive in. So first and foremost, how are you doing, Matt? How are you holding up this year? What's your state of mind? Are you okay? Oh. Uh,
2: I, it's been an, an incredible 2021. I mean, sort of on a macro basis, obviously with the pandemic, it's been been hard. But I think 2021 has been a lot more positive than the negative in that regard. Certainly for my family and kids getting back to school. Um, two, you know, we build you know real time infrastructure for Web3, and 2021's been just a crazy breakout year for us. I mean, I don't even know how many thousands percent we're up in growth by you know customer count and revenue count and team count. And so it's been you know massive expansion year for block native. And you know what we do is sort of viewed as sort of esoteric and on the edges. And now it's really viewed as sort of front and center to how all of these public blockchains work. And uh, it's been fun to be in the middle of all of that. So uh, it's great to have conversations like this and share what we specialize in and tune everybody into the real-time layer of Web3. Heck yeah.
1: So so let's zoom out. We always like to start in a zoomed out uh, fashion, and then we'll get into the nitty gritty. But uh, Web3, right? Like that's a big term that's starting to get tossed around in lots of different circles. And so could you kind of unpack that term for our listeners? What is Web3 to you? Um, and why did you decide to kind of start building a business in this industry?
2: Oh, so so Web three is the, the new umbrella term for all things crypto, blockchain, etc. Um, it's you know the intentional era parent to the Web two world that we're in today. Um, it's often easiest to think about sort of the progression, and and Web one was establishing core internet infrastructure, establishing what websites were. was really about content and consumption, and it was largely a passive experience. Very important. My very first company I ever started was an internet company back in 1994. Uh, That one was called NetGenesis. It wound up being one of the first ever web analytics businesses. And that one was a nine-year overnight success, a zero to IPO. And at the time we went public, it was one of the top 35 IPOs in history. But I built through the formative stages of Web 1.0. Okay. I happen to be an undergrad at MIT. I happen to have a lot of exposure to internet technology long before anybody else did. Long before I I was even born. Well, you know, I like to say it, you know, I've earned all of these gray hairs, bought and paid for. I've done a whole bunch of startups. Um, and 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 I'm a glutton for punishment this way. And, and I, I share that because so after web one was web two, which was much more about two-way communication and content, you know, uh, uh self-publishing user generated content, social networks. And we saw the rise of entirely different classes of user experiences powered by the same protocols of Web10, but used in a much different way with sort of new technologies and then sort of accelerated by the mobile revolution and sort of the portability of it all had this negative consequence though of Incredible concentration of power into a relatively small number of, of centralized organizations that have big sway over not just our lives but our societies, right? Which is perceived as, as suboptimal to put it to put it mildly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Along comes Web3 in reaction to that. Web three is absolutely a reaction, and from the Bitcoin white paper on up to look, the forces of centralization are inherently problematic and inherently corrupting and inherently bad for individual liberty. And the only way to ensure you know, self-sovereignty and individual liberty is to build fundamentally decentralized systems, systems that are architected in such a way where there, there is not and cannot be a centralized actor who can control the network, who can censor participation, who can gatekeep, if you will. This is Web3. Now, it t- took me a while to start to tune in. Um, my most recent startup before I did Block Native was called Collaborate.com. And it was a mobile collaboration platform Built on the the crazy idea in 2011 that people do real work on their phones, which was, you know, weird at that time. Now it's And that got bought by Cisco and it was an early exit was great. I moved from Boston to the Bay Area where I live now. And I was busy doing Cisco stuff. I was an exec in their collab business unit. And I was aware of Bitcoin, but not really paying attention and and just it was sort of on the periphery. And I had a good friend who said, you should really start tuning in. There's something really important happening here. And I said, I'm busy. And he'd come back and he'd say, hey, dude, really interesting things. You should start to pay attention. And I think it was either the third or fourth cycle of that. He's persistent. I said, "Okay, fine. I'll start to tune in. And as soon as I did, my immediate reaction was, I've seen this movie before. It feels exactly like Web 1.0 in 1995, 96, like and, and, and it was almost eerily parallel. And and I realized, you know, I was an operator in the Web 1.0 days and very young. And, and now I'm still an operator much later in my career and I get two bites at this apple. And, and how unlikely is that, and how lucky am I to be in the situation and I realized I would never forgive myself if i didn't you know jump at it so uh, that was two thousand sixteen or so in two thousand seventeen I joined block native um and and that was actually a totally different company doing different stuff with different people and we wound up sort of doing what we do now but um you know web three is the next generation of user experience in you know across Public networks. It's inherently designed around trustlessness, permissionlessness, and self-sovereignty. It's built on a different class of technologies and informed by what has come before. But it's emerging and very early right now. And the same way that early internet was really hard and really weird, you know, that's Web three. So long answer, to a short question. But I'm good at that.
1: Well, well, pizza mind. Uh, do you, would you agree with me that that's probably not only the best explanation of Web three I've ever heard, but it's probably the best explanation that exists on the internet today? <laughs>
0: And that's why we brought Matt Cutler on here because he's just that good, ladies and gentlemen. So, Matt Cutler. <laughs> yeah, honestly, honestly. So, he's found also a way to do something unique in the crypto space. You know, in a, a place where we've got fifty forks of Bitcoin, you know, a hundred forks of Ethereum, a thousand forks of Uniswap and Compound Finance. He found something that wasn't being done yet, and a way to you know, as we talked about, your Block Data was really creating an edge. But now, this is something that any professional in crypto needs to be aware of just to compete, honestly. And that's the transaction mempools of these major blockchains. So backlog. That's right. Give us the breakdown. What is a mempool? Why is it important? And what kinds of things are you guys looking for in there? Sure. So uh, we,
2: BlockNative, provide the real-time infrastructure for Web3. And what does that mean? Bryce, Aaron, right now, right this very instant, what's happening on these networks that you guys care about? Or can you wait 13 and a half seconds on Ethereum or 10 minutes on Bitcoin for the next block to be confirmed? And then you can figure out what was going on a while ago. Right? I've never asked that question to someone where they say, I'm comfortable waiting. Right? Like I want to know right now. And the reason why I want to know right now is right now, transaction fees are being determined. Right now, uh, trades are happening. They're going to move asset prices in various locations. Right now, NFT drops and other things are happening that are going to increase network congestion. Right now, our tax are being planned and deployed that are going to affect network health. And all of that stuff, you got to know, and none of that's on chain. All of that exists in the pre-consensus layer. Okay, the pre-chain data where transactions go to be candidates for confirmation. And this layer is known as the mempool. Okay. It's the and thing. Every that-
1: blockchain has their own mempool. So Bitcoin has their own, Ethereum has their own, Solana has their own. And is that right?
2: Well, so so every block every public blockchain network must have a pre-consensus layer. They have different names to them, they have, they have different mechanics to them. Because if if anyone at any time could write directly to the chain, it wouldn't be a very useful blockchain. It'd just be a database, right? And so, you know, by definition, for a public blockchain network, you have to. Uh, uh, regular users have to be able to propose transactions to be included. That the 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 infrastructure, the block producers of the network, whether they're miners or validators or sequencers, need to evaluate. Say, hey, this is good. There's block space for this one. It's got the appropriate fees, and put it in. Okay. And so, yes, each each mempool is distinct. And this is also by where network. they decide that there's no double spending, right? Exactly, exactly. So, hey, I try to double spend and the node, the infrastructure, the nodes will say, that's an invalid transaction, you don't get on the chain, right? Again, if I could write directly to the chain, then I could double spend all day long and it just doesn't make any sense, right? And so this is sort of one of these necessary things, but it's it's super interesting because we use this term, the mempool, because it's easy to think about, but there's no such thing as the mempool on Bitcoin or the mempool on Ethereum every node in the network has its own unique mempool the nebulous sort a... of catch all term exactly and and it's a global network right it's like a fabric and during periods where the network is not very congested the fabric can be fairly consistent but when the network is more congested and by the way ethereum right now is like always congested it gets super lumpy so you can look at the network from one location or one geography you know north north america and see one set of pending transactions and look at that the same network from a different geography europe Asia, Africa, and see a very different set of transactions, right? And so this makes this data layer very difficult to work with for regular people, okay? And the reason is because it's not easy to observe. It's incredibly high scale, you know, uh, a, a blockchain, you know, can, clicks forward and confirms block and everyone can see the, the identical blocks, but but anyone can write a transaction to the mempool at any time. And so you can see incredible surges of transaction volume that require pretty significant infrastructure to be able to ingest. And sometimes of-
1: people even spam the mempool. I remember people would spam that thing. So transactions would get backlogged back in 2017. There was a, a huge war.
2: Yes. And, and on Ethereum, there was a thing called Black Thursday back in 2020 that, that was uh, a flooding attack as well. So there's all sorts of interesting games that can be played in this pre-consensus layer. But, but I think the thing that I'm sort of driving at is that we like to think about public blockchain networks as inherently equitable. Everybody has equal access. Everybody has the same data, the same APIs. It's open. It's public, except the mempool. Because the mempool is something that that doesn't have a consistent set of APIs to give you access to everything going on because there's no truth, right? And so you'll have haves and have nots. You'll have certain actors who generally are deep pocketed who can work with this data easily and you'll have Regular people who don't have deep pockets, don't have a lot of technical expertise, and don't, and then you create, you know, fundamental inequity in in access to the ecosystem. And so what we're trying to do at Block Native is democratize this data layer to make be the easy button for, for mempool data so that you don't have to have a bunch of infrastructure, you don't have to have a ton of expertise. You get a consistent, easy to work with APIs that allows you to play with the big boys, right? It allows you to, and by the way, like. Why do you want to play with the big boys? So so here's an interesting one. Um, uh, On-chain data is truth, right? Once it's confirmed, once you've had a couple of blocks, it's not going to change. All future truth is in a mempool. The only way to get on chain is to get into a mempool. And therefore, if you can look at the mempool in its entirety and understand it as it's going by, you cannot kind of, you cannot sort of, you actually see the future. You can say, here's what's going to be in the next block. And when that's in the next block, here's what prices are going to do on Uniswap for that asset. And you can see that with perfect clarity. Now, imagine playing basketball or soccer against an opposing team that could see five seconds into the future and you couldn't. It'd be a very frustrating game because you'd always be behind. They'd just crush you, right? And so this is what's happening in every moment on every public blockchain. You have haves and have-nots as it relates to access to the real-time data layer, know how to deal with it. And if you ever feel like you're, you're just one step behind all the time, like, how is this happening? Why am I always late to it? It's generally because of mempool games and tricks going on. And if you want to start getting up to speed and want to start using it, go to our homepage, blocknative.com. We have a pretty robust set of tools and all of them have free to use access, right? We of course have commercial plans going up, but, but we make it exceptionally easy and we produce a lot of content and we, we appear in places like this to let people be aware of this technology and to help people start to use it so that they can be more effective in their strategies.
1: So, so Matt, so for, for a non-technical person, somebody who's not a coder, right? But somebody who is actively trading the markets, right? They're doing their own strategies. They hear this, they're like, holy crap, this resonates because you're right. Whenever I buy something on Uniswap, it'll, you know, slip the price will slip against me and then the price will fall. And I'm, you know, screwed both ways till Sunday. And, and so now tell and plus, you know, minor extractable value, MEV, this was a huge trend, uh, sandwich attacks, all this stuff. And so, how does a a, a non-coder apply and, and take successful strategies here from Block Native? <laughs>
2: Well, so okay. At the end of the day, like it, you, it, everyone benefits from learning how this stuff actually works, right? And so it, you know, it's a whole thing. Like, hey, trade with Robinhood; it's free. And you go, actually, if if you know how it works, it, it's not free at all. You're like you see how the sausage is made. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it turns out that your order flow is being sold, and you 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 do pay a price. It's just not exposed, not explicit. It's the same way that using Google is free or using Facebook is free. Like. It's not actually free it's just not directly monetized through you okay yeah, so it's almost the same way that that you know inflation is a hidden tax you know yeah. most people don't think about that and know how it works right i mean I, I had this conversation a lot you know your savings account is melting away like an ice cube right now so you got to get out of that right and so first off is like arm yourself with the data to understand how these systems actually work because you will be facing um, Opposition opponents, adversaries who, who do understand how it works, and they'll use this information asymmetry against you. Two, you know, once you get a little bit knowledgeable, you can use tools like our mempool explorer. So there are a thing called block explorers that allow you to look at blocks and contents of blocks and transactions. And everybody's familiar with going to EtherScan, which is great. And, and there's many other block explorers that are out there to, to help you understand what's going on with on-chain data we at BlockNative built the first ever Mempool Explorer. Um, And we're still the only one that's out there, which is super fun. And basically what you do in our Mempool Explorer, it's a visual interface for building real-time data streams fed by Mempool data. So instead of saying, tell me about a transaction, you say, tell me about a smart contract. And I want to know anytime a specific function call is called on Uniswap V2 router, okay? So you need to know, how Uniswap works, you need to know what the router address is, which we sort of do a lot of that for you. You need to understand, you know, swap ETH for exact tokens, like what does that mean, right? But we basically with Mempool Explorer, click, 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 and you can get a live stream of when specific assets get called at specific locations with specific, you know, criteria, you can Boolean them together, you can create ranges, and you can then know, Immediately, when people have put transactions in that affect assets you care about, or when those transactions are confirmed, you can very easily click, click, click and write that out to a Slack channel or to a Discord channel. If you're a little bit more sophisticated, it could go straight to text. You could then wire that into a, a trading system that you have. If you're using something like Hummingbot or any other automated system like that, and you can now begin to trigger activity based on you know things that are about to happen and all enabled by a relatively straightforward interface called Mempool Explorer that's publicly accessible. Now, you know, as you get into commercial plans with us, you get more data volume, you get it faster, you get more capabilities as you go forward. And, and the idea here is that the ROI is like, it pays itself off in a, in a, in a matter of minutes, like it's pretty high value. But but the, the whole idea is um, to let regular non-technical folks begin to get familiar with working with real-time data. And, and, and I'll, I'll just say, We used to talk about all of this and then we'd say there's this API and documentation and people would sort of go, "Uh uh-huh. And once you put a visual interface on it, you can just feel the light bulb pop over people's heads or they go, oh, I get it now. This makes sense to me now. Um, And so there's a lot of easy things you can do to get started like monitor and wallet address. It's another way you can do this stuff. And uh, anyways, get started on your your mempool journeys.
0: Yeah, I love what you guys have built block native. Uh, There's also a gas tracker on there that you guys have put to help Let's try and figure out the best time to make an, a transaction on Ethereum. So I, I find myself using that one all the time.
2: Yeah, please definitely check out our gas estimator. So it's gas.blocknative.com um, and we're constantly building on that. That's actually powered by a, a very interesting lower level API that we call gas platform. We actually have real-time ML models running constantly. Literally the model updates every second that says based on the current contents of the mempool, What are the contents of the next block going to be? So if you wanna get into the next block, like there's a trade you gotta get in, how do you have to price that trade or price that transaction in order to get it included at what confidence level? So we literally do next block prediction. We're looking at the mempool, we're determining what prices are gonna be. We provide advice for that. We make that publicly accessible via our gas estimator. By the way, there's an amazing extension for that too that works on Chrome and Brave. We're working on a Firefox extension as well for that. You can put it right in your browser. We're getting requests for mobile apps for that, for desktop apps for that too so we'll be building that out over time and then you can get it as an actual api programmatically if you build just a minimum commercial plan with us you get it every second not every five seconds and you can use that to exactly dial in how you set transaction fees you can see history to say you know what uh, this is not really urgent. I want to find a time a day or day a week where I'm going to pay less for that transaction. It can help with that as well. So it's it's a really valuable utility um, for anyone who's active in these ecosystems.
0: Oh, yeah. If you're doing anything on Ethereum DeFi, I, I'd say this is a must. This uh, this latest feature you added with that uh, calendar heat map is uh, <laughs> just amazing. I can see through the whole week, 24 hours a day, when the lowest prices are, when the highest prices are. These days, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your
1: small business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs made it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. In fact, here at Crypto 101, we use LinkedIn to search for new employees, including our Crypto 101 podcast manager, Ryan, who then, in turn, worked with the folks at LinkedIn to partner with us as a sponsor. Crazy how that stuff works out, but here we are. And basically, here's how it works. You create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over, yeah, 770 million people. Then you could focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified candidates. And then you can use some simple tools on LinkedIn jobs to quickly filter and quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and then ultimately hire. Uh, it's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. And did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers are visiting LinkedIn? So you can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash crypto okay that's linkedin.com slash crypto to post your job for free okay terms and conditions do apply if we could apply this like what is an extractable insight from that when it have we seen the like on average the lowest period of gas prices or, you know, maybe um, the best, you know, what's the most active time? For instance, um, what's maybe making me think of this is there in the traders world, the, the, the time of most illiquidity is like Friday night in America, Saturday morning. in Asia, where you know, the banks are shut down, you know, traders don't have many counterparties and all that kind of stuff. And so that's when all of these you know, downward moves and, and, or even you know upward moves in, in Bitcoin happen on Friday nights in America. It's like it's happened time and time again. And so that's when you know, risk is basically highest. So I don't know if there's any other insights we can see from uh, that are kind of similar to that, but in the, the mempool world.
2: Well, so it's fun. So we have this big graph. It's pretty neat. But uh, Aaron, if you look in the upper left, there's a little slider and you can drag that slider. So you can say, only tell me the time slots, which have the lowest gas. And then like all of the data falls away and you just see a few like times a day and days of week that that shows that to you and and again it's all this is all utc so it's always a little bit uh funky but you know i just pulled it up oh we're sharing right now yeah there you go
0: right yeah let's actually get this on video here i mean how cool is that so sorry for everybody who's listening
2: on the podcast
1: version of this uh but that's okay we'll chop it out in editing
2: <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, Brilliant. go to gas.blocknative.com and, and experiment, like click around, play with this stuff. And, and this is probably my biggest advice is like just go hands on, right? It can be very intimidating. There's all these terms, it's new. And, and the more you read about it, the more confused you get. The more you use it, go hands on. Go, oh, I understand. What does this control do? Why would they put that control there? Oh, that's how I could use it. That's super interesting. So, um, you know, this is what's super great about Web three is it's very um, experiential. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter anything like that. It's it's all equal access. Um, and so uh, we're really excited to be contributing this. Type of stuff to the ecosystem. And, and I will tell you, like, we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more we we're we're planning and ready to do. We're building right now. And so uh, if you look at it and you go, it would be cool if they did this, or wait, hey, how might this work? Like, let us know. We're always excited to get new ideas and suggestions from our user base.
0: You know, I, I think you're absolutely right. To actually get your hands on the stuff is the best way to learn how to use it. And I wanted to get your advice on. What do you think it's going to take for users to migrate from Web two to Web three? Mm. What was the catalyst that made them leave Web one and go to Web two? And what needs to happen for them to finally say, you know, we're done with these centralized companies that are stealing our data. Mm. We're actually going to make Web three part of our daily lives. So uh, I, I tend to say my crystal ball is as
2: hazy as the next guy. But what what the 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 history of technology adoption would suggest that people aren't likely to change their behavior to do the old things in new ways, right? They either need to do the old things in ways that are 10 times better, whether they're 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper, or or 10 times less friction, or they need to be able to do entirely new things that they can't do anywhere else, okay? So one of the things I I dislike about crypto is, when can I pay for my coffee? (laughs) And, And the reason why I say this is like, You know, paying for my coffee is a pretty seamless experience. It's pretty unusual for me to go, ah, boy, I pulled my watch out and tapped it and it just worked and she handed me my coffee like that was awful, right? And so I think the opportunities are going to be in in areas which are, one, incredibly full of friction. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's doing wire transfers between uh, a design firm in Eastern Europe and a contract manufacturer in China going through intermediate banks. And just, it's a small operation, building a, an interesting product and just how much time he has to spend just trying to track down where drive transfers are, their clearance explaining. And he's like, could crypto help me with that? And I was like, oh, dude, USDC will like change your life. Right? <laughs> I mean, it, it And changed changed <laughs> it, it, is, it is like, night and day, thousands of times better, faster, more efficient to be like, click, click, click. I transfer USDC, it goes through in moments and it's immediately convertible to USD and nobody has any questions and goes forward. Of course, it requires that both ends have that capability, but you feel that pain enough, you flip over to USDC and you'll never go back to wire transfer just without any question. Okay, So that's a good example of a use mm-hmm. case. The other is doing things you you can't do. So look, you know, we, we had trading and tokens and that started to take off. And then that gave rise to DeFi. And I think that appealed to a certain um, set of folks who are sort of financially motivated and want to sort of drive yield. And then this has given way to NFTs. Oh, now it's culture. Now it's music. Now it's sports stars. Now it's collectibles and ownership and trading. And guess what? My kids have no interest in yield and collateralized debt positions and token speculation, but they care a lot about collectibles. They care a lot about getting limited edition shoes from here and being in auctions and then reselling them and making profit. Like I have teenagers who do that and you go, Hey, the same thing, but you know, the worst part of this is like getting the shoes and then repackaging them and selling them back up and people worrying about fraud. Like imagine you could do the same thing, but you never have to take custody of the shoes. It's all digital, right? You self-custody the stuff, and you move it. And they completely get that, mm. and they hear from folks who they respect, whether they're streamers or whether they're you know music stars or or sports you know figures. And they go, "Oh, dad, tell me about this. Like, get into this." So we, I think NFTs are hyper-constructive this way. Now you have DAOs forming, which are whole new forms of human collaboration and coordination. And so there's all sorts of other people who are like, "Wait." You know, I want to do this, but the liability is really tricky and the legality is really tricky. Oh, do a DAO, right? That'll solve all of that, right? Get everything you want without all the headache. And you go, hey, tell me about this DAO thing. So I think these are the sorts of patterns we'll see that will drive web two to web three migration. And then, you know, uh, I, I will say this, it tends to go slow and then fast. And, um, and 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 I tell this story if you don't mind me keep going, but but in the 90s, oh, yeah, yeah. I was building web stuff, right? And I used to tell this story like, hey, the online world is small and the offline world is huge, but the trend seems pretty clear that online is growing and offline is shrinking. And at some point in the future, we'll live in a more online world than offline. And in the 90s, people thought I was nuts, like bonkers. Like this is like explain to me how some coffee shop is going to need a website. That seems absurd, right? (laughs) And here we are living in 2021 where you can't even do a bake sale at your kid's school without a social media strategy, right? Right. We live in a 98% plus online world today. Okay. Today in 2021, the on-chain world is very small and the off-chain world is huge, but the trend is just as clear. The on-chain world is growing and the off-chain world is shrinking and the three of us and all of your listeners are gonna live in a future which is dominantly on-chain. And today we're basically not there at all. So there's gonna be this period of, all of this existing transaction flow transiting and moving over to be on-chain transactions, whether they're L1 or L2 transactions. And, and there's going to be a massive enablement that, that happens alongside of that. Some of it's going to be consumer-driven, a lot of it's going to be business-driven. And then we're not even going to make the distinction between an off-chain transaction and on-chain transaction. We're just going to talk about transactions because, of course, they're all going to be on-chain because how else would you do a transaction? And I seem, that seems pretty clear to me. And I'm it's pretty fun to be Enabling that future to to come about by building the real time infrastructure that we're working on. Heck yeah, that
1: sounds wild, um, and I love it. You guys are you guys are well on your way, and you guys are already working with so many different protocols. Um, you know, I kind of ha- you know, I got a multi layered question, I guess. But Pete's and I, you know, we've been doing the podcast for a few years, and we've been talking about the future of interoperability. That's been a big theme that we were saying, hey, that's going to be here. And, and you know, now here, end of 2021. Uh, It's here. It's very clear that was the trend. And so I guess going forward, you know, what do you really see as being that next big trend? Um, If, you know, interoperability and, you know, was this year, basically in 2021, kind of what's the next stage?
2: Well, so interoperability could be many things. Um, I I take, take it as composability, like people can build on top of what other people are doing. I think one of the big trends that emerged in 2021 is, hey, we're going to live in a a heavily multi-chain future. So there was a period of time where it looked like it might only be Bitcoin, or maybe it's Bitcoin plus Ethereum, or maybe there's going to be some small number of chains that matter. And now it seems like there's going to be a lot of chains that matter. There's going to be a lot of chains that have developer support. There's going to be a lot of chains that have user adoption. There's going to be a lot of chains that have TVL. And there's going to be a lot of different ways to do stuff, different chains, different trade-offs, different jurisdictions, different you know, realities. And so this is great. I think it's highly constructive for the ecosystem. It's, it's great for end users. It's great for competition. It's great for you know developer engagement. Um, but it creates all sorts of additional complexities. And so I think one of the big emerging trends is how, do, how does one operate in confidence in a multi-chain world where any given thing I want to do, there's eight different ways to do it on six different locations and what's the best way to do it? And it's not really clear what the best way is. Or I say, hey, look, I paid you and you got to say, what did you pay me in and where did you pay me? right? Like, oh, I I paid you in USDT on Polygon. And you're like, oh, well, I'm not on Polygon. Like, oh, well, you got to get over there to that L2 and and go get it, right? And there's different criteria. And now you're, you know, it gets super complicated. Um, So I think this whole, this this one of the trends we're going to see is an an increasing diversity of L1 and L2 locations um, and tools to help manage that. That then will give rise to a new thing, which is going to be cross chain communication. So this is enabled by protocols like um, Polkadot and Cosmos where you can actually create transactions that span chains that introduce all sorts of additional opportunity and complexity. Um, And again, will require all sorts of new tooling to to manage and mitigate. And, And again, I think this explosion of diversity will create all sorts of new experiences for folks to engage with. And by the way, new profit opportunities and new risks that come along with that. And um, again, super fun for infrastructure providers like us to try to keep up and try to be relevant as the the space continues to evolve.
0: You mentioned uh, an acronym TVL. Uh, That means total value locked. Just to give a comparison, I think the total value locked inside DeFi, meaning the amount of money that's been put across all these different platforms in defi was i think we cracked a billion dollars for the first time last year it's currently at 259 billion dollars across different chains on ethereum alone there's 18 different platforms that have over a billion dollars locked in it that's crazy
2: and what's fascinating, so so 259 billion, there's a great resource called DeFi Llama. Um, if you go to defilama.com, you can see all this stuff and see who's got traction and who's growing. But what's fascinating is DeFi started on Ethereum. Okay. So at the beginning of DeFi, Ethereum had 100% of the TVL. Today, I was just reading this uh, Delphi uh, research published data that says, TVL is at an all-time high. Ethereum's share is at an all-time low. Ethereum has 65% of this TVL. So fully 35% of the TVL is on non-Ethereum blockchains. But if you look into that data from Delphi, no single chain has more than maybe 8% of the TVL. So there's a whole bunch of places you can go where you can find sizable total value locked, but it gets fragmented pretty quickly right? And so again, you know, like, what's the breakout? What's the next Ethereum? How is this going to go? Is this good or bad? And you go, well, it's it's probably good that there's more diversity, that there's more locations to find DeFi opportunities and more different ways, because maybe the fees are high or one or the block time is low, or, you know, certain uh, um, DEXs are are not really available in your jurisdiction, you can still participate. Um, But also, you know what, trading strategies that are not working on Ethereum, because it's too competitive, maybe, you know really profitable over here on Polygon or really profitable over here on Phantom, and so it creates all sorts of new opportunities for, for folks who are interested to find uh profit opportunities that are out there.
1: Wow, and in just that framing right there of like Ethereum's TVL being so dominant compared to the others, it kind of makes me think like you know that liquidity that it has is part of Ethereum's moat, right? Everybody says, Oh. You know What's going to be the next Ethereum killer? I always think Ethereum's got a pretty big freaking moat. Not only does it have the, the largest open source development community of any open source project in the world, um, but it's got the most liquidity. And it's funny to see like the uh, kind of like that trail off effect of like, okay, well, so you could go to Solana, you could go to Avalanche, but the liquidity that you're going to get there is just not the same.
2: Yeah, it's it's. I think Ethereum is the shining light where it's got the most development activity. It's got many of the top minds, um, and once things get proven in Ethereum, they can diffuse to other chains, which may have cheaper block space, may have faster block time, may have different assumptions, maybe more centralized, right? And and but at, the pattern has been really well established, which is the the innovations happen on Ethereum, and that's where you get first crack, and then they diffuse fused to others it used to be they'd get copied right so binance smart chain by the way uh, is the one who really pioneered this idea which is hey look you can do defi on finance smart chain but it's just cheaper faster and more profitable it, it turns out that people care about making money right and they're happy to move over right and what they were doing at that time was basically literally co- you know taking smart contracts and moving them over adjusting them slightly and that was it now What's happening is if you build a protocol on Ethereum, you also want to deploy that protocol on Phantom. You want to deploy that protocol on Harmony. You want to deploy that protocol in multiple locations because your brand is being built. People understand how it is. And you want to capture both the user engagement and the TVL across multiple chains. And so not only are the users increasingly multi chains, but the projects are multi chain. Guess what? Projects all involve infrastructure. So, do they have to reinvent their infrastructure for every single one of these chains, or do they want to standardize on multi chain infrastructure like block data? We're multi chain today and getting more multi chain every day. You say, hey, look, it becomes very easy for me to write once, run in many locations, because I have a set of infrastructure which enables me to do so. This is great for the protocols. It's great for the L1 and L2 providers because it drives you know, developer adoption, and it's great for end users because they have choice. Okay, This sort of positive feedback loop, I think, is super exciting. And, and again, it's just it's a positive flywheel that, that feels you know, pretty unstoppable. There's going to be you know ups and downs along the way, but the general tra- trajectory is going to be up and to the right for the entire ecosystem.
0: So as we mentioned the tremendous growth of total value locked inside web3 already but it still feels like we're in the early days. At what point do we feel like mass adoption is complete? This is now a set of standards. Uh where's the benchmark for success? Is it is it literally the moon? Uh, <laughs> You, I was just
1: thinking it's funny that the way you phrased that just made me envision like we're currently on our rocket ship mission to the moon, moon but at what point do we hit orbit?
2: And we're just chilling, you know, we, we, we've we made it. Exactly. Or do you say you get to the moon and once you get to the moon, you can mine new resources and then you can hop to Mars. And you can say, now we're on Mars, we can go elsewhere. Like, I don't think we're bound. I don't think this industry is bound by what exists today. I think the industry is bound by our collective imagination. Hmm. And, and by the way, we don't need to look any further than the internet, right? Like how big could the internet possibly be? Like the magazine industry? You know, the music <laughs> industry? And you go, actually, it turned out that the internet was bigger than all of them combined by several orders of magnitude, right? That was yeah. completely the wrong yardstick. Because once the internet started to consume some of these other forms of media, it invented entirely new forms of media that drove entirely new growth opportunities. And and yeah. and my bet, but I, I feel pretty comfortable with this, is that crypto is following the exact same pattern, right? Yeah. We're, we're in the skeuomorphic phase where we're basically rebuilding and mimicking that which has come before, but we're beginning to explore the design space of totally new experiences, totally new possibilities. And, and once that really starts to take hold, that that will it will grow, you know, we'll see an inflection point in growth and we'll see an inflection point in engagement. And ostensibly, we should see an inflection point in asset values along the way. Yep. Um, but yeah, we're just at the very early stages of this of this journey for for this rocket ship. No, no question.
0: Yeah. And speaking of the new design phase, uh, the metaverse is now the big topic of what's to come: metaverse, NFTs, AI. In this new emerging sector, you know we've been waiting for VR since like the '80s. You know, and watching Judge Dread and stuff like that. So <laughs> when does you know, what what's the the future of this look like to you or what are you hearing in terms of rumbling or what catches your eye and your interest in these emerging technologies so so the
2: memeing of of the metaverse has been pretty breathtaking just so how it went from sort of under the radar to sort of mainstream media all over and then you know obviously facebook renaming itself uh, is pretty fascinating. I think there's sort of two very competing visions for what that happens, a, a top-down corporate controlled metaverse, which I think is the, the one being pioneered by Meta, and a bottoms-up organic um, metaverse being uh, championed by the, the Ethereum, but the smart contract-based platforms where, look, it's just an open ecosystem where anyone can participate. By the way, we fought this fight in the internet. You know, there was this version of the closed internet, like AOL or Excite at Home, and the information superhighway versus the open internet, which was like ragtag and messy and open <laughs> protocols. And and I think we know how that one played out. Um, but just because, you know, history happened one way doesn't mean it's going to necessarily happen the next way. I think you're going to see a huge amount of investment and a huge amount of experimentation. There's going to be successes and failures and flameouts. But, you know, it's weird how the pandemic really changes everything. So You know, in the formative days of VR, the theory was, you know, how many people are really going to strap a screen to their face? Like, really? Like, people are going to do that? Like, that's probably not going to happen. And you're like, I'm stuck in my one-bedroom apartment all day long. Please scrap a screen, you know, put the screen on my face, right? Suddenly some of these things become very possible, right? There's a lot of rumors and speculation that Apple's building a a next gen experience, either a VR augmented reality. I think will also make these sorts of things more normal and and more accessible to more people. Um, But that ultimately there is a corporate sanitized version, which feels very cartoony, and there is the weird and open version, which maybe is a little bit dangerous, maybe is a little strange, maybe is is not so so uh, sanitized, but is ultimately much more compelling. and And I think that is the world of open innovation that I certainly want to see come around, and that I think that the the open blockchain ecosystem is is building towards.
1: Wow, love it. Love it, Matt. While we still have you, uh, I know we're, we're just about up on time. Um, I want to just get your 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 final thoughts you know a lot of these folks that are watching crypto 101 brand new to the space or you know just getting in what's your one word of advice one word of wisdom uh to keep everybody on the right side of the market
2: uh just in general <laughs> so so you know crypto is a full contact sport and and it's best <laughs> experienced hands on okay never heard that one but I love it and so, like, get involved and, and get involved, get some, get some holdings, set up a, 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 an exchange account with a fiat on-ramp. Move it to private custody, learn what it is to manage your own keys and your own assets and start to participate. Um, It used to be relatively cheap to get going and doing in terms of transaction fees on Ethereum. That's really not the case anymore. It's a pretty high barrier to entry. But there are other chains that are out there that offer similar capabilities that are a whole lot cheaper to transact with. And I'm talking to my friends who are gravitating immediately to some of those as opposed to starting in Ethereum, you know, purely for that. The great news is, you know, if you have the resources to get started, I would start with Ethereum. If that's, you know, you don't want to spend several thousand dollars in transaction fees just to learn the ropes, go someplace else. That's totally okay. So uh, uh, go hands-on. The sooner, the better. The longer you wait, the further behind you are. Um, We at Block Native actually get asked this question a lot. We created a blog post called... um, Blockchain 101, resources for the crypto curious. It's actually Ooh. a pretty long and intimidating blog post. I mean, there's a lot there, but but it's our you know, curated list of, hey, if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, here's how to get started. And it actually, the first whole section is learn about how money works, right? Turns out that, that's pretty important to know how money works and learn about Bitcoin because that really started a lot of these ideas and learn about Ethereum and smart contracts. Check platforms and search, explore DeFi and NFTs. And there's a whole progression you can go through. Um, and the final thing I'll say is everybody was a newbie. But unless you're Satoshi, you are a newbie at one point. And therefore you had someone who helped you overcome that, okay? I did. I'm deeply thankful and appreciative of the people who are patient with me when I was getting started. And there is very much an ethos in the space to pay it forward. And so you have folks like, like us, folks like you guys who are enthusiastic, who are encouraging, who are educating folks, who are putting resources out and, and just dive in. It's an amazing ecosystem and community, and you'll find a lot of resources to help you. And you know, once you're up to speed and once you're down the rabbit hole, please continue to, to carry that forward. Those are the messages I would share
1: man that fires me up it's a great way to end things uh, block native everybody has to check it out you guys got to get an edge in the markets um matt thank you so much for joining us we hope to have you back on here uh sometime soon with some more updates
2: you bet thanks for having me guys you can find me on twitter i'm m cutler you can find block native pretty much anywhere block native and uh we'll see you guys online and look forward to continuing the discussion